0: Hi, this is Greg Anderson, and this is the Living in Carver County podcast. It's an insider's conversation with the people that make Carver County the best place to live, work, and raise a family. Um, I'm very excited today. I know I say that a lot, but I really am because uh, this has been an interview that's been a long time in the works. And my guest today is Ryan Seibert. He is the chief of police uh, for the city of Chaska. Uh, there's a, you know, obviously people that are listening to this, majority of the people listening to this are from the Twin Cities or specifically Carver County. Um, but, uh, you know, people know that there's a lot going on with policing in the country and certainly in in Minnesota. And so I've invited Ryan on to uh, talk about some of the hard stuff. But before we do that, um, Ryan, thank you for agreeing to be on. I really appreciate it.
1: Yep. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it.
0: I'd like you to maybe start off with just kind of your story. You know, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? How is it that you came to end up in uh, Chaska, Minnesota?
1: Sure. No, great question. So was born and raised initially down in Winona, Minnesota. Uh, for those that might not be familiar with where that is, it's down kind of in the southeastern tip um, of our state. Um, like I said, I was born and raised down there. Uh, my dad was a police officer for the Winona Police Department. He served there for... 32 years, um, and he retired as a deputy chief uh, down there in Winona. Um, Went to college um, down in Winona as well for my undergrad at St. Mary's University. And I'll be honest, uh, when I went to school, I did not pursue a bachelor's degree in anything related to law enforcement. I had different ambitions and different ideas and things uh, in mind at the time. But given that influence, my dad uh, at the police department down there, basically right, wrong or indifferent, became a second home as I was growing up as a kid. uh, My dad would bring me in there, especially on the weekends and I'd have interaction with the officers and obviously professionally, that was a big part of my dad's life. So I grew up directly around Um, those influences led me uh, to a career in law enforcement. So when I did uh, move out of Winona, um, I went to a community college after I graduated with my bachelor's and I did what's called a certificate program in law enforcement. And that was in Rochester. Um, And then ultimately after that, the job market was very different. Uh, back in the early 2000s when I was looking for my first law enforcement job, and I just kind of took the shotgun approach um, to applications and things, and I interviewed with the Robbinsdale Police Department, Uh um, which ultimately they were the the agency that gave me my first job, and I served in that role until coming here to Chaska. Um, I think right around 2009, I moved into the city of Chanhassen, um, which is where I still reside today, so I was making that commute, Um, to and from so we've been a part of this, this area and community for quite some time. Um, Ultimately, when I saw the Chaska police chief job, when that posted, I knew I was very interested both on a personal and a professional level. Um, On the personal level, um, it was important to me to, you know, perhaps one, you know, get rid of the the commute uh, back and forth every day, but also um, just recognizing now with two children, you know, eventually going to be in school different types of events and things would be easier uh, to be a part of their life just being uh, here in the community and then also on a professional level one thing I I knew about our community in this area is this is a very strong sense of community pride and community identity um, and being able to serve as uh, the police chief you know with those factors was very important to me
0: cool Very cool. You mentioned uh, the police department being like a second home. I have a lot of friends who would say that same thing, but probably not a completely different experience than maybe what you had.
1: (laughs) Everybody has a little different experience.
0: (laughs) I think it it depends on what side of the wall you're on.
1: (laughs) But, you know, in that said, you know, regardless of what type of experience people may have, you know, whether it's like mine or you know, maybe it's on the, the other side of the, the coin, if you will. I mean, we I, I, we strive to make that as positive an experience as we can, without a doubt.
0: Okay. All right. Well, I told you I was going to ask you a hard question, burning question. All right. You ready? I'm ready. All right. <clears throat> Why do I have to sit there at the light at Audubon and Chaska Boulevard waiting for the arrow when there's nobody around anywhere? (laughs) Do I really have to sit there like an idiot waiting for the arrow? Or if I've come to a full stop, can I just go? You
1: know, that is a great question. I'll be honest. I have asked myself the very same thing uh, in the past. Um, But, you know, from what you're describing, you know, if you are at a traffic light or what I call a a semaphore, you know, looking to take a left turn and you have that red arrow, yes, you know, to the letter of the law, you do have to wait until that were to turn green or sometime at certain intersections, you'll see where it goes to a yellow flash, um, which indicates that obviously you have to yield to oncoming traffic, but then you can proceed. But yes, the safe. You know, to the letter of the law, <laughs> answer is yes. You do have to wait. But I be honest with you, wherever that question came from, I share that same frustration. Uh,
0: there late. and then at um Audubon and Galpin too. I, I go to. I used to work out over in the Chanasson and, and I'm sitting there at 4:45 in the morning, like an idiot in the dark, waiting <laughs> for the light to turn. I,
1: I have done it myself many times, so that all is right, a very right. common question. Shared but no. pain.
0: Shared pain. Then all right.
1: Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great first question, though.
0: <laughs> All right, so let's let's kind of dig into some other stuff. Um, you know, let's talk about what's just talk about policing right now, just kind of in a really broad sense. You know, is your job easier? Is it harder? Is it just uh, you know? Let's just talk about policing, just in a sure. really vague sense, and then we'll. I've got a bunch of stuff I'd love to drill into if you're if you're up for it.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, I can put it in a kind of a personal context for me and I can tell you that in my almost two years here as the police chief, um, the job has become more difficult, um, for a number of different reasons. Um, and I think it's important to note, you know, just in general, a different perspective, um, that some may have towards law enforcement, whether you want to call it, it's less supportive, Uh, Perhaps it's somewhat adversarial. There's a direct connection that makes the job more difficult. Um, Looking at the Chaska Police Department, I firmly believe that the the officers and the staff of this department do the job for very altruistic reasons. Um, They're doing it for the right reason. And I think our staff finds the job to be a little bit more complicated um, when there is that just immediate degree of Kind of an adversarial encounter in some situations and it's frustrating uh, because when the staff, you know, does go about their job for the right reasons and they're trying to make um, you know, kind of a positive impact when they can, it's tough when you're faced with that degree of adversity. Um, in addition to that, I mean, there has been a degree of frustration on the part of our staff and it's shared amongst law enforcement throughout the state, just with the ever-changing, very, in a very quick fashion, different standards, um, different laws, different procedures, uh, model policies that have been thrown at law enforcement in a very short period of time. And it's not the change element per se, that is the challenge, but it is very profound paradigm shifts. Uh, For instance, that we've seen with our deadly use of force statute um, and some other areas of operations where essentially you have to very quickly detrain somebody in methodology that they've known for their entire career. So for veteran officers, that might be 20, 25 or more years um, in to what I describe as a very significant paradigm shift. Um, So again, it's not necessarily the change that's the problem, it's just the, the timelines and the significance um, of that change. Um, and another challenge also, which I fully embrace, um, because I think it's important to note that any organization, whether it's in the private or the public sector, you know, change can be a positive thing. Um, but I think one of the things that we're faced with that we need to continue to emphasize is what I describe as co-policing. And that's making sure that we are staying connected with our community, Um, We're engaging in mechanisms for, you know, honest communication and feedback back and forth and making sure that our services, um, our policies, I mean, everything in our operations is in line with what our uh, community might expect.
0: You mentioned the officers getting in for the right reasons. And I know a number of the police officers. I mean, I think they're all, you know, pretty good guys, um, especially Martine. Got to put a shout out for Martine. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this might be the only one podcast he actually listens to. So I want to make sure just, work his name the in pressure it. is on. Yeah, exactly. But what's, you said the right reasons, what what are the wrong reasons? I mean, what, you know, not, you know, in a general sense, what are the wrong reasons that people get into law enforcement?
1: You know, I don't know if it's so much to me about, you know, what the initial motivation <laughs> is uh, for getting into law enforcement, but Uh, To me, I think the most important elements, and this is something that, you know, let me back up a second. Um, I think most people that get into this profession do so for noble reasons, and these are people of strong character, um, good judgment, and they want to make a difference. And it's important to note that these folks, they don't have some, you know, misguided sense that they're going to change the world, Uh, but it is important to remember that you might be able to make an impactful difference. Uh, for one person each day, um, which I'd kind of describe as one by one policing, where we have the opportunity with each individual, you know, one by one contacts to make a positive difference. So again, recognizing that people uh, from the onset, young officers or people that aspire to get into the profession, they want to make that difference. And I think when I mentioned doing the job for the right reasons, it is sustaining that throughout your career. Um, because it's very easy in any profession, but certainly in law enforcement, uh, to become complacent, um, to sometimes develop an us versus them perspective. And here at the Chaska PD, I don't think that's the case. I think that this is an agency that is very much ingrained in community engagement and partnerships in going into each encounter um, and trying to be that problem solver, um, trying to develop a solution, not just to whatever might be on the surface, but what kind of a midterm or longer term solution can we help folks with? So to me, it's just making sure that we're one hiring the right people. And then those that we have within the agency, make sure that that focus um, remains consistent doing the job for the right reason.
0: Okay. You you mentioned complacent. Is it complacent or jaded? I mean, or is it, or is it a combination of those? I mean, I, and I, and I'm not, not, specifically picking on police, but just in general, you know, you get to a pertinent job. I, I you know, my job's not anywhere near as stressful. Right. But then people will call and they say, I want to get into real estate because I like people and I like houses, you know, and they do this. And mm-hmm. I am like, you know, in six months, you're not going to like either. Cause <laughs> that's not really, you know, there's a, it's a sale, you know, there's, there's specific things around that and then people, and then they get become disenchanted, you know, and I got to think it's got to be a, a, certainly a multiple of, degrees of difficulty when you're dealing with something where it's as um, where there's this, we have this added element of, you know, bodily harm and personal safety issues and those kinds of things. So, um, but, you know, you, complacent I, is an interesting word. I was, you know, it, from your perspective, is that, is that what you think? Or do you think it's just, they just get hardened or, I mean, to me, complacent means that you sort of lose interest. Um,
1: I think it can be individual um, for okay. you know different employees, and their experience might be a little different. Um, I think in some contexts, jaded could be a good description, um, like I described that us versus them you know type situation. Um, complacent, I think, could also apply, um, where you know somebody might check out where they feel like I can no longer make a difference in the community for whatever reason. If if they're basing kind of a, a biased perspective on you know negativity. I think it's very easy to become complacent with that mindset um, in losing sight of you know, those that we do serve in the community, um, doing the job for the right reason. So I think it could be a multitude of those factors um might be some issues that you see in law enforcement in certain types of settings but again you know I don't want folks to get the perspective that I think that's occurring here at the Chaska PD because it's uh, certain, right
0: you know, I, I, and that's fair Ryan I'm, I'm not trying to pin your ears back on anything happening in Chaska I'm just just an observational thing right I mean you see the videos all right everybody sees these videos that go viral you know the the guy from um was a major in the army and he gets pulled out, he's at some gas station and he drives up and you see the footage and, and you, and it's just such, um, you know, there's so much aggression to, you know, and and the guy was, you know, take your hands off the wheel. And he's like, he's got his hand, put your hands outside. It's like, I can't do both, you know, conflicting instructions and things. And, and I think there's a, there's a fear around that, or it's like, okay, wait a second. So, and i know this isn't this isn't something that you see happening but just from your perspective based on your years of experience in law enforcement how do departments how do they how do they get a handle on that how do they how do they recognize when an officer maybe is sort of at a point where they've crossed over from you know using your words the right reasons into you know into into something else that's negative
1: no and that is a great question and I'll be honest with you, there is not a one-size-fits-all approach across the spectrum of agencies. Um, I think our department, our size, it is quite a lot easier um, to be able to maintain a healthy environment. Just, I mean, the current structure of our department, including me, we have 28 sworn officers. So we know each other. Um, The partners, you know, the other officers that work with one another, they know each other In place to ensure that they're properly dealing with stress, um, that you have a good peer support network within the agency, and also that the officers feel supported um, by the police department administration. And that's not to say that we don't hold people accountable um, when we might see shortcomings, but just feel that general sense of support. So when you combine all of those mechanisms in place um, and you find manner or mechanisms in which to remind people to to do some self-reflection from time to time and remember what brought them to this profession, whether that was a a desire to serve, a desire to help people, whatever that might be, um, just to have time for that sort of self-reflection. And when you combine all these elements together, I contend that it makes for a healthier workplace environment. I think it makes for healthier employees. Um, which, again, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution, um, but it does lead itself towards those more positive uh, connections um, and dialogue with the community that you might see see daily. Um, So, again, you apply that to a larger agency where maybe you have 500, 1,000 officers, you lose some of that personal connection with the staff. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't necessarily have those one-on-one connections and know when somebody's walking down the hallway in the morning that something just seems off. Um, that's just not going to happen at a, at a larger agency. So here, I think that's a strength um, when you look at our agency size and just making sure that we're taking good care of our people um, so they can take good care of the public, if you will, and whatever those types of uh, contacts might be
0: generally these things you know that the stress points or the feeling of not being appreciated or what you know can lend themselves to mental health challenges do you guys feel like you do you feel like you're getting the appropriate support to deal with these mental health issues with your officers and then also the training to deal with you know the mental health challenges that you come across with um um, people in the community, people that you're interacting with. I don't, I w- almost said customers, but that's not really not the right word. <laughs> it, I
1: mean, but, but truly, I mean, I, I think the term customer, I mean, it, it can apply. Cause after all, at the end of the day, I mean, we do uh, supply a service to the community. And, you know, if you look at that uh, um, customer could apply. So I don't think that's a bad analogy. Um, I think Greg, to answer your question, I, yes. Um, We have the tools and resources available. Number one, internally, um, we do have a very robust wellness program at the police department, which has been supported by uh, city administration as well. And um, this is a contract that we have in place for mental health check-in visits for our staff, which are voluntary, um, and those can occur on an annual basis. And we also have a peer support team in place. Um, So if an officer might go through something challenging either in their personal life or professionally, there's a mechanism in place for for that outreach and support. And then we also do have a contract in place that, and and a procedure that, you know, if an officer or multiple officers comes across some kind of a a critical situation or something that is just so very sensitive, uh, we do have what's called either a debriefing or defusing uh, session that can occur just to put people down in one place, kind of talk through what happened and let them know that there's, resources available if they continue to struggle with what that might be. Um, With the public or our our customers, if you will, um, I do think we also have uh, pretty good resources in place there as well. Um, A good number of our staff has been through what's called the 40 hour crisis intervention training, um, which the city administration and the council fully supported with some increased funding. Uh, to our training budget. Uh, Those that have not been to that gold standard 40 hour training, if you will, there's been a pretty considerable amount of lesser duration courses and crisis intervention dealing with people with developmental disabilities. So from a training standpoint, uh, we're on solid ground. Um, But what I can also tell you, uh, we have more of a a, a intrinsic strength with our staff because there is a very much an openness and a willingness to learn more Um, when it comes to dealing with people that might be in crisis or dealing with developmental disabilities and just making sure that we're continually improving as an agency, which is a strength. And we are now, well, three months into the year and what I call a pilot program uh, for something that we call enhanced services at the police department. So what we're doing is we're centralizing from a record standpoint, any response that we have that is mental health related in the community. And the officer that's part of this pilot program currently is then engaging in what I call follow-up visits or follow-up care uh, to these individuals. And these could be chronic or these could be acute mental health situations or persons in crisis and trying to really apply outside the box thinking uh, what kind of resources can we bring to bear with partnering entities or agencies to provide midterm and long-term solutions uh, to some of these challenges as where, you know, kind of the continual cycle that we've seen historically is law enforcement might have contact with a person in crisis. Uh, Maybe there's enough to send them on a transport hold to a hospital. Maybe there's not, Um, but very oftentimes those encounters end law enforcement leaves just to be called back later that day or the next Um, And we're just, again, trying to think outside the box, how can we apply different strategies, longer term solutions uh, to bring about more uh, positive uh, encounters, if you will. So that's a work in progress, but to answer your question, Greg, I'm probably getting long winded. Um, I think we have very adequate resources in place and definitely a willingness to engage uh, in a conversation internally and externally uh, regarding how we can improve even further.
0: Okay. And, and there's kind of a segue into what I wanted to talk about. Cause there's this, you know, I don't know anybody, you know, regardless of how progressive they are that buys in. I think we're in an environment where it's easy to have this sort of polarization and you basically, it's, it, 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 I mentioned this, I was talking about this with Kai Tran from the community foundation. One of the outcomes that I had with this podcast is to talk about things in a, in a more substantive way, you know, now something that can't be put on a bumper sticker or a meme, right? right. And, and so, you know, this notion of defund the police, you know, it's easy to take that in and it's extreme and say, well, fine, you're just going to live in this crime infested, uh, you know, and, and that's, I don't think that's accurate. I mean, at least no one I know, regardless of how progressive they are, think that that's a reasonable solution. It's more about a reallocation of funds to address the specialty I, uh, situations that someone encounters on on the job as a po- with and making sure that that's somebody with that particular skill set because invariably at least what i hear from friends not martine i'm not outing martine on anything but other people that I know a lot of people you know because i'm old <laughs> but you know you guys deal with a lot of shit right i mean you get a lot of different things that you know a domestic thing okay now you've got to talk somebody off and I, I, I my cousin was a police officer and he'd talk about when i was a kid i remember him talking about going in on these domestic things and he's pulling the guy off who's beating the hell out of his wife and next thing you know the wife's hitting him with a frying pan because he's you know he's getting to you know she's perceiving danger to her spouse and so you're dealing with these things that are really outside the scope of you know what you know kind of what's sort of in your wheelhouse in uh, you know in terms of of your job and so um you know, that's why I was asking, is there at, you know, do you feel like at least in Carver County, I mean, I know you can't necessarily, maybe you can speak to the sheriff's department, but out here, do we have an appropriate amount of resources being allocated in the areas that you'd like to see? Um, maybe I'll leave that. Is that, is that, is that a lucid question?
1: No, it makes sense. Um, you know, let me I'll stick to Chaska because that's what I think I can uh, certainly address, and and then I can you know talk about our partnership with the sheriff's office as well. Well, um, our
0: policing in general, though,
1: I mean sure. you could, you know, um, so it's it's an ever evolving issue, and I think the key that we have to look at here in this area is it, having a continued commitment of reevaluating service levels, capacity, and what we need to accomplish in public safety delivery and those services. So here in Chaska, um, from a resource standpoint, it's gonna be very important to continue looking at the city growth in the development, not just you know raw population numbers, but also taking a look at what kind of housing, what kind of commercial development um, is coming into play because there's a direct, Correlation, not only just to patrol services, but also from an investigative standpoint. You know what kind of criminal cases might be initiated. What kind of follow up mechanism is going to be required? Um, what's the role in technology or digital evidence uh, as it relates to those uh, growth elements? So it's it's continually evolving, Greg, from a resource standpoint. But you know, right now today. Yes, I think that we have the, the tools in place here in Chaska to uh, to fulfill our mission, but we do need to be forward thinking and also look at recruitment uh, for the future, which is a whole nother issue. Maybe that will come up in a little bit, but in just being very honest that a younger generation of aspiring officers might look for very different types of career enrichment than what some of the previous generations were interested in. And I would argue there's a direct correlation to what I kind of coin as specialty positions. Or career enrichment. And those might be things like, you know, an investigator spot, a school resource officer, um, which obviously we have both of those, but also, you know, canine programs, uh, you know, digital evidence processing, forensics, uh, which we have some area and room for growth in those areas. Um, But just being very honest in that kind of analysis, what do we need both now and in the future? Um, And also, you can apply that more broadly with law enforcement. I mean, the criminal trends that we see. Um, Again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but just the need to process evidence from a forensic standpoint changes all the time. Um, I'm sure most of everybody that's going to be listening has a smartphone, either in their pocket or somewhere on their desk. Um, that's a whole other kind of bag, if you will, of issues when it comes to evidence. Um, if it's tied into a crime, um, a search warrant perhaps is written for that, then the, you know, whatever that set evidence is needs to be extracted from that phone, um, which is a whole host of technology, uh, hardware and the software that goes with it, and also the uh, personnel and training um, to be able to do that so you know th- that's just kind of one example but all across the spectrum in law enforcement that's relevant and also this the changing technology um, you know we've all heard about license plate readers and things which uh, some departments use but you look inside of a what, a modern squad car from the computers to the radars all the equipment in there um, these things change constantly so trying to stay state-of-the-art um, all across the board but to me, you know, getting away from the technology and, you know, some of those more tangible things, I think all across the spectrum, whether it's here in Chaska or any agency USA is thinking outside the box as it relates to mental health and all steer steer clear of, you know, kind of the politics of it, you know, both on both sides, you know, the polar opposites. Right. But it, it, the, right.
0: And that wasn't my intention is to, no, I wasn't no. trying to go political. It's just, but, you know, you've got basically, you know, extremes never are, I think are accurate, right? I mean, the idea that people want lawlessness or that you want a bunch of thugs going around, you know, kind of, you know, goose stepping down the road, you know, beating <laughs> the hell out of people. I mean, so, you know, people want to be, I think generally people want to be safe. That was actually Jason's, when I asked Jason, you know, uh, one of the, uh, that for people who don't know, I'm talking about the sheriff and he wanted, I said, what is it you want people to know? And he goes, we live here. You know, my kids go to school with your kids, you know, we're not doing policing to you. We're, we're immersed in the community.
1: A hundred percent, um, completely agree. And, you know, I could probably summarize it this way, um, to your, you know, kind of initial question is how can we provide balanced and effective, uh, police services? And I think that's the way that we have to look at it. And I think a component of that, you know, like I talked about with enhanced services, um, doing better, in the areas of mental health and the response, but also uh, being able to respond effectively to crime patterns that we might see in the community. And I always look at it um, this way. Our service levels need to reflect um, the ability for us to be able to deal with a more critical situation that might occur, and also be able to respond to the theft report at the same time. Because to me, there's it's a big disservice if we have a resident that's lived here, let's say for 20 years, and they call the police for the first time And it takes that agency three hours to get there to take that theft report uh, because they don't have enough resources to deal with both at the same time. It gives a a perspective that the police just don't care um, about whatever that particular concern is. So I think we need to have that very broad perspective when it comes to our delivery of service and make sure that we're serving everybody in the community the, the way that they should expect.
0: You mentioned everybody and you mentioned that the kind of the evolution, you know, is that as the community grows, it's there's a certain inevitability that it's going to be more diverse, you know, what are you guys doing to address the needs and concerns of a more diverse population.
1: No, And that's a great question. Um, so this is an ongoing discussion because what is very important to me is, you know, in any type of community engagement, whether that's a, a community forum type meeting or if it's some of the engagement programs that we do, how do we engage with a broader segment of the community and how do we sustain um, that conversation. And I'd be lying to you if I said I had a perfect solution. Um, we have some ideas and I think some of it has began with the official communication that we send out from the police department and having that translated um, into different languages, um, which we recognize, obviously the three most commonly uh, spoken languages, English, uh, Somali, and also Spanish within our community and doing our best to translate what we think are the most significant messages. So we've done that for some of the community meetings that we've had, um, some of our types of media releases that we've sent out, which I think that is a very good first step. Um, We're also in the process of entertaining some additional programming to certain areas of the community where we might have uh, higher uh, diverse populations within the community and just trying to do our best working with other entities and partners to increase the comfortability of some segments of the community that maybe have been more reluctant. Uh, to be involved with law enforcement. So it's a work in progress. There's definitely uh, work to do. Um, But from an inclusion standpoint, that is very important to make sure that we have the different segments of our community represented in whatever type of engagement that we do.
0: There were a couple of incidents that I was thinking about, you know, in the course of, of, you know, thinking about the things that I wanted to talk to you about. And there were two incidents that come to mind where I thought that the police departments showed a level of sensitivity tends to be kind of a gets too touchy feely maybe, but grace, I, I, maybe grace. Um, the first one was when those two young gals from Shakopee, um, those Somali gals drove their car and drowned in the pond, you know, over off a of white Oak. And, um, you know, you guys did something to accommodate the families based on uh, the um, uh, traditions and ethnicity and religious practices of the, of the girls that were involved. you want to speak to that maybe a little bit? I know you don't get I know that's, that wasn't something that was widely known, but I was very taken by that um, when I heard the story behind that.
1: In, in that incident, Greg, that predates me here at the department. Um, But what I can tell you is absolutely. And while I may not know the specifics um, to, you know, the the different um, um, mechanisms that the officers might have employed in that situation, what I can tell you is our staff, you know, from my position down uh, through the ranks, we do recognize those situations. Again, I don't know if sensitivity is the right word. I'll, I'll use it. Um, But when there is something that might be sensitive, especially when we have cultural issues, we might have some um, other challenges that we have to uh, address. We're certainly committed to that. And there's been some other examples um, that we've had in my time here where we have had tragic events and maybe we have either cultural um, challenges, maybe we have some language barriers that exist. I mean, it is incumbent upon us to work through those and try to best serve those families or those individuals through those tough times. And that can take many different forms. Um, But to answer your question, yes, that remains a constant priority of ours. And in each situation, it might be a little different. Um, And when I mentioned kind of that one by one policing methodology earlier, that's directly reflective of what I meant by that is not taking a broad approach um, to any given incident, just looking at are there things that we can do specifically in this incident and how can we um, be impactful and provide the best service that we can.
0: Sure. Um, Sorry about that. I thought that that was on your watch. (laughs) I was talking about the tent and everything so the family could come and because the, you know, Muslims have a particular um, ritual around uh, uh, passing and things, but the other, the other thing though, and this kind of leads into uh, a whole line of things is, uh, you know, talk to me a little bit about BLM. you know, what's your take on it? I mean, I, I just, I'll just leave it at that. Talk to me about, you know, Black Lives Matter.
1: So to me, I mean, any type of, you know, movement um, that you might see, I, I'm always willing to engage in a conversation with people. And in I'm not the kind of person that takes it personally. If people disagree with my perspective or they disagree with law enforcement, I always find key takeaways from any type of conversation or situation. Um, What I've always appreciated is, you know, in a given situation, we might not be able to agree, you know, on all of the topics, on all of the issues, um, but I always find it very productive where if you can agree to disagree on some areas but you can find common ground in other areas, I think there can be a mutual benefit. Um, so whether it's the, the BLM movement or others, what frustrates me is when there's just, and I'm not saying I've had necessarily any, you know, personal experience or dialogue this way, but just when you can't find any common ground has been frustrating um, because I'll be the first person to admit in law enforcement or any profession, there's there's always room for improvement. Um, but I think when people come in they are calm, they're cool and collected, um, and you can have an honest conversation and a dialogue, that's where you can identify some of those change elements and things that might be needed. But it just takes a willingness from from both sides to come to the table. But, you know, in terms of whether it's, you know, a Black Lives Matter movement, I also know on the flip side of it, you know, there's the kind of thin blue line type issue. It's I, I, You had mentioned it earlier, too, but just I, I think what frustrates me is the polarization. Um, that we might see on different sides of an issue and I would wish that people would just kind of reiterate we have a lot more common ground um, all across society than we might recognize and when we can come together we can have an honest conversation I think that's where improvements can be made. Mm
0: -hmm. And and I think that's fair and I'm I'm not trying to hold you accountable for you know all of white people, but I, you know, on the other hand, I can, in your role, can you appreciate why there's a segment of people that are pissed off?
1: Absolutely. I completely can appreciate that. I'm sensitive to it um, without a doubt. And I think it's important to recognize that. I, you
0: know, I think, I mean, I, I, as somebody who lives it, I mean, I'm very proud of being in from Minnesota. I mean, I chose to be here. And, you know, it, it kind of breaks, and, and I obviously have a business interest I, that it's better if things are good here than if they're bad, right? But but just personally, it always breaks my heart when there's some big incident, and there seems to have been a disproportionate number of incidents that rose to the level of national attention that are happening here. And then they all point to, you know, the, there's, always, there's a lot of conversation around the numbers and things, but... It doesn't change the fact. I mean, it, it, it actually, that exacerbates the the discussion, right? And so, so I just that's why I guess what I was. That's the frustration is. I every time I see that, it breaks my heart. You know, obviously, there's the personal connection. You think, well, this is unfair. You know, um, my dad before he passed away passed away um, three years ago. And, you know, he, he would like to kind of goad me into conversations, you know, and he goes, so what do you think about what do you think about that guy taking the knee? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And I said, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? I said, I don't know. I said, my son's working at Culver's tonight. Then when he was in high school, I "said my son's working at Culver's. I didn't have to have a talk with him. I'm not worried about him getting pulled over for a broken taillight and ending up getting shot. I'm not worried about, I don't have a talk with him about how to engage with law enforcement. You know, I don't have an expectation that there's going to be, that, that it's going to start with conflict, you know, now, if he's an idiot, then, you know, slap him around a little bit, but if he's, you know, if he's doing it, but I don't have an expectation. I haven't had to give him the talk. I don't know anybody in my world that has been abused by, you know, in my world. I mean, I, I granted, I live in Chaska. I live in a, you know, I'm in a pretty much of a silo, but I don't know anyone who's had a adverse interaction with law enforcement you know i don't know anyone who's lost a family member because of an interaction with law enforcement and 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 so i so my point that i was having with my dad is i said so i don't know how i'd react but if my son got shot because of a pull because he got pulled over because of a broken taillight, i'd burn the freaking town down i mean i'd be so i'd be enraged and so i, I think And so I guess that's the part you know I understand the idea of commonality, and I and I absolutely what you strive for. But part of getting together is having the empathy for what somebody's going through, and I and I think that's something we miss here in Carver County because it's not something that's top of mind. It's not something we're engaged with because of our current demographic breakdown. And so as this evolves, this being the growth, this kind of naturally occurring growth. you know, we're going to start to see more of these things. You mentioned Somali, I mean, 20 years ago, there was probably almost a non-existent Somali population. And now it's it's a fairly significant population and you see other areas that are going through this. I think we just locked up. Oh, there you are. You're back. Yep. Anyway, so I, that's what I wanted to talk about, Brian and I, Brian, and I wanted to just kind of get your take on that. I mean, how are you preparing for that? And, and how do you address that if that happens? And because there, again, that second thing that I wanted to talk about was, was some grace that you guys showed, you know, during, you know, things that were happening in Minneapolis. Is that, is that fair from a context standpoint?
1: Yep. No, the context makes sense. And and I can tell you too, Greg, that, you know, with law enforcement also, when you see these incidents that have happened either, you know, in our immediate area or they happen across the country, it's also very impactful on our staff and on cops everywhere. Um, You see these videos and you see some things and situations and it's just very hard for an officer to look at some of these situations and try to figure out how exactly something transpired um, because when incidents like that happen mistakes are made lives are lost tragically um, we don't like to see that either um, and it impacts us i mean i, I think it's very important it's
0: got to make your job harder
1: it, it, it does and i think it transcends you know a lot deeper than that also um, and i think what's important on all sides of the equation whether it's the police it's the public We all have to remember just kind of this, you know, human, this kind of sense of making sure that we're continually humanizing individuals. So when you had mentioned, you know, kind of a lack of empathy and things, I think what people get caught up in, in life, and the daily grind, if you will, we're we're all exceedingly busy between jobs, kids, you know, other things in life. And I think we risk sometimes just getting kind of a general numbness um, to a lot of the tragedy that we see. Um, with the twenty-four-seven news cycles, with social media, it is just constantly thrown in our faces. Um, so I think that's part of the the battle as well. And just we we have to remember, just again, that you know this we can't lose that sense of humanity and making sure that we can empathize with people. And I would argue too that just in our you know daily approach with our officers on the street and very mundane contacts, um, that still applies as well. Um, even if somebody is adversarial, um, you know, maybe they're throwing profanity around. It's just, we got to remember they're a human being um, and empathize with them. So I think it applies all across the spectrum, not just in those, you know, tragic instances that we see. Um, But, you know, to your, you know, kind of the broader context, if, you know, we did have some sort of a a tragic event here in the community, um, I think it's very important and it's hard to kind of give a a broad analysis of it, because there might be some different legal things oh, of data privacy that you would have to deal with. But that would certainly be one of my top priorities: is information sharing with the community, um, having dialogue in an appropriate sense to make sure that people feel heard um, on all sides of that spectrum. So there would be a great deal, again, of sensitivity um, depending upon you know what the circumstances are. It might look a little bit different, but that certainly would be part of our response to any type of a tragedy
0: cool i you know i just this idea that you know blue the thin blue line and black lives matter that that's a binary choice i think most people most lucid people would reject that notion you know you're going to have extreme. you're going to have people that take the i mean because if you think about the concept that black lives matter well how how do you argue with that right And now there's going to be people that are going to use that as a tool to rationalize all kinds of things. Just not unlike, you know, I mean, you go back, look at the crusades. I mean, look what they did. People people use things that are inherently, you know, potentially that are inherently good and use it for, you know, for, you know, alternate means. And in likewise, the thin blue line. I mean, I don't think those are, I don't think that's a binary choice, you know, um, speaking of that, when, you know, there was, there was another, you know, during the, you know, we had a, a March here, you know, during the Minneapolis riots, um, you were here for that, right? I so, was. Yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about the way that you guys responded to that? Cause there, that could have gone in a whole bunch of directions, right? Absolutely. But you, you guys had a, a clear, a clear strategy on how to, um, you know walk and chew gum right i mean you gave people an opportunity for free expression and yet you, and then you turned it into something um that was really positive and empowering for the community so maybe that's that second that, that second thing of grace that i was so impressed with so yeah. talk a little yeah. bit about
1: that One thing I think it's important for people watching to know about me is I'm very analytical. So when we became a a planner also, um, when we became aware that potentially there was going to be some kind of a demonstration or a march, um, we evaluated all the information that we had in front of us. Um, What was important to me from the onset that if it was going to occur, it's first and foremost, First Amendment rights are a priority. Um, So if people are going to demonstrate in whatever form that might look like, that's their right. Um, But also, recognizing that I do have a public safety obligation as well uh, as the police chief. So from a resource standpoint, we had staff in place, both from the police department and also some of the different uh, city departments to make sure that we could respond if we started seeing things that, you know, potentially went into the criminal element um, and deviation from First Amendment. But all of those resources were kept out of sight because I did not want this to look like we were over-policing, that we were gonna to try to stifle people's right to, to demonstrate and of their free speech. So we had resources in place, should we need them? Fortunately, we did not and they stayed out of sight. Um, But also during this demonstration, there was some sort of like a clothing drive or a food drive Mm -hmm. uh, that was also occurring because recognizing this was right at the the onset of the pandemic and there was a great need in the community for food. Um, And a couple of our staff actually went, purchased some uh, grocery items, and they went there and they engaged directly um, with the people that were organizing that and some of the demonstrators and dropped that off. They paid for that, you know, out of their own money um, and they had a good conversation. Um, with people. And we've had a few other, you know, more isolated, smaller scale demonstrations where we've sent members of our volunteer cert team uh, to help if they needed uh, anything with traffic direction, if they were trying to get across the street. So um, again, it's that uh, sensitivity, taking a look at each situation a little differently and seeing if there are ways that we can engage Um, with individuals. And like, you know, I had said earlier, it's not always about um, the message. You know, if, if people have a different opinion, it's not going to hurt my feelings. You know, if people want to voice that to me, because that is the only way that I'm going to be aware um, of people's feelings. And again, it's that empathy component. So um, to answer your question, Greg, I mean, that was our overall response and each situation is a little different, but again, those are the, the fundamental elements, you know, first and foremost, it's looking at the demonstration, ensuring uh, First Amendment rights, the ability to demonstrate, and then balancing that with probably an abundance of caution in preparation for that public safety piece.
0: Yeah. No, I Like I said, you can walk and chew gum. I, I mean, I just don't think these are binary choices. I thought the food drive, I mean, Julie was down there with the car at the trunk open, you're collecting clothes, you're collecting food. And I mean, uh, you know, it, it just, it was a way to be I just thought it was such a graceful way to say it. we hear you and we want to be part of a solution and I, I really thought that was a very very elegant um i mean as a downtown business person i you know you like you said you don't you, there's you've got to be able to do those two things at one time you got to have public safety and yet you still have to give people the rights to um you know and especially under those circumstances because you know people were, were pissed so Absolutely. Okay, so we covered a lot of stuff here. (laughs)
1: They're good questions.
0: So, you know, for people who don't know local policing, you know, talk a little bit about that. I mean, we touched on it a little bit, but, you know, how does that factor into your decisions when you're, you mentioned, um, you know, bringing people on, you know, the recruiting part. I, I, I imagine, I have to imagine that that's been a challenge, just like, you know lots and lots of jobs are, uh, unfilled, you know, looking for, looking for, uh, quality people and, and certainly, you know, policing in the last three, four years, um, has taken a kick in the nuts. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm not particularly eloquent.
1: <laughs> I think I get the drift. <laughs>
0: I wanted to make sure I to make sure I was clear on that one, but you know, what are you what are you doing? I mean, how, and then how and how are you encouraging people to be, you know, to to about what what are the values? I guess that you're trying to instill. We talked about you know interaction. We talked about you know having each other's back. You know, being supportive. Um, you know, the and and eliciting community support but what are some of the other things that you sell as sort of a value proposition to get people to buy into this you know larger vision
1: you know I think it very much starts you know at the recruitment stage and you know here historically I as my opinion and I think it's very demonstrable just if you meet our staff and you've mentioned a number of them but making sure from the onset that the people of the right character um, with you know what we think is good problem solving, good judgment, um, but so much of it is that character piece. Making sure that they are the ones that are being hired. Uh, here within the organization i think that's first and foremost and then from there i mean everything from our training program um, to our supervisors making sure that we're keeping our staff motivated we're developing them and you know we're sustaining them like i had mentioned a lot of those factors before uh, making sure that they're still you know doing the job for those altruistic reasons and that takes a lot of different forms Um, so Currently, you know, at the department, I think the ways that we do that, um, we've started a recruitment committee, um, which we still have some work to do, but identifying ways of, you know, how can we ensure that we're getting those strong candidates coming on board? Um, Are there mechanisms that we can employ to market perhaps to a more diverse set? Um, of applicants coming in the door. Um, so there's work in progress there. Um, there's also things internally where you, we do expect a high number of retirements over probably approximately the next five years. Um, so how can we ensure that we're developing people properly internally uh, for a succession of positions? And how can we ensure that you know folks in our organization at every level um, also feel inspired to be leaders? Um, and I think when you feel that you are part of the organization that your opinion matters internally and you're kind of part of change elements and decision-making. I think there's a natural kind of tendency for that to expand um, into our broader external context as well, uh, where people feel that you know they can make a difference. So I could chalk that all up, making sure that we have a healthy organizational culture, um, which makes so much then of those external elements a lot easier Um, and it helps kind of sustain that professionalism, if you will. Um, But moving forward, again, I mean, I can't uh, understate the importance of that recruitment piece, which is going to be so vital, um, but also making sure that we're in tune with retention of our current staff, who, um, again, I think they're top-notch individuals. I'm proud to serve with them. Um, But with this current uh, kind of job market, how do we ensure that we're retaining uh, these great people within our organization? Um, so those in not necessarily in any particular order are probably two of our um, biggest priorities, but, you know, also, like I had mentioned, you know, co-policing models in engagement with the community in making sure that we're applying those in an authentic sense to gauge what the community might expect of us moving forward, um, what style of policing is expected within the community. And then on the flip side of that, taking that coming up with a strategic direction um, initiatives that reflects what our community expects and making sure that we are in a very viable sense in a very open sense, communicating that to our public. Um, So again, that is that successful co-policing model if you will.
0: Okay, Um, we're gonna shift gears a little bit. I was part of that citizens um, initiative where we, you know toured there was a group of people that toured a bunch of the public facilities we saw public works we saw the fire department we saw the police department the city hall you know and kind of anticipating the needs that the city's going to have that various entities within the city are going to have as a result of the growth that's kind of preordained and one of those one of the takeaways from the group was the um uh, frankly, kind of dire need that the police department has for additional space. Um, I wasn't going to make a closet joke, but you guys literally are in closets working. (laughs) So I didn't make a joke about Chaska police being in the closet. I'm just saying you are literally in closets. (laughs) So if I get pulled over, I don't want to get, I don't want to get any grief about this. But the fact is that, um, I mean, you, you guys are just busting at the seams. So what does that look like from your perspective where does that and where did that where does that public awareness need to happen is that does that come from council is that something that you're part of is it is it people in the community going hey i don't know if you know it or not but these guys are literally on top of each other
1: in A lot of the kind of the strategy or the messaging piece um, as it relates to city facilities is a a work in progress. And I think some stuff is going to be coming out publicly soon. Um, But to answer your question, I mean, to me, I think the majority of that, I mean, truly should be public focused. Um, I think the city intends to explain uh, what the facilities need looks like um, both now and in the future and how... It could potentially impact resources, both currently and in the future. I'm sorry, service delivery. Um, if we don't have the proper facility, and I can well, tell you,
0: And recruiting though too, right? I mean, it, you know, it's. I mean, if somebody's got a facility where it looks like, I mean, it, the message that set, has to send to your recruits is, you know, this it, this is a priority or it's not a priority.
1: Absolutely. And there is an important recruitment piece and just kind of generally speaking with the police department, I mean, a a modern facility concept, we would have a um, large space uh, for community type meetings um, where we could have a venue to have the community come in where I've mentioned, you know, whether it's engagement, it's listening sessions, it's the Citizens Academy. I mean, all these types of programs uh, that we have in place, having our own dedicated space Um, rather than having to go out and find it somewhere else is important because good relationships between the community and the police department, I mean, we should have the public at the police department. They should be interacting with our staff, having those positive interactions, and also having those difficult conversations. And at our current facility, we just, we don't have that option. We don't have that sort of meeting space. Um, And to your point, I mean, there's a connection between recruitment and also operations, but if in a new facility, we would have to do our best faith effort to look, what is law enforcement going to be like in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years, and connecting it back to that technology piece that I was speaking uh, and referencing earlier, how can we integrate Office space, technological capacity to make sure that we can fulfill those missions. Um, You know, reverting back again to those specialty positions that I mentioned, do we have adequate office space? Um, you know, things as simple as locker rooms, break rooms, having a positive staff experience, um, a weight room where you up. can
0: actually put a barbell over your head.
1: <laughs> and that as well, you know, as it relates to wellness. And you're 100% right that, you know, we have i
0: <laughs> I'm not very <laughs> tall, and I don't think I could put a barbell over my head in that gym. Of yours. No,
1: you'd have to sit down. Um, But you're right. You know, if it can, I always look at it from this standpoint. If you're going to have an open house at a police department, maybe that's for potential recruits, you know, when you have a job opening, or maybe it's for the public, there's just, there's nothing for us to showcase here at this facility. So it's not a, you know, a shiny object, if you will, for recruitment, Um, but a new facility could be about all of these things put together. And I think put in a better location within the city. Um, size, uh, also for current needs, but also looking into the future, um, definitely would be beneficial also to our service delivery uh, to the community as a whole.
0: Okay, cool. Well, I wanna I wanna be respectful of your time. I told you I'd have you out of here. Um, One last question, and it's the same. It's that I'll uh, give you the opportunity to answer. It's the same question I asked Jason. Is if you could be sitting in somebody's living room, having a beer, what's that one thing you'd want them to know?
1: You know, I'm gonna resonate probably a little bit with the answer that uh, Sheriff Cameron gave, um, but I would want people to know that there's two things. Um, the staff of our department, they are your neighbors. These are people that live in the community. Um, and it's really important to know that the, the staff of our department is doing this job for the right reasons and they want to make a difference. Um, And we as a department, we want to work with the public. Um, So it's not just lip service coming from me with co-policing models that if there's something that has been identified, maybe there's room for improvement. Um, If there's just general feedback, I mean, I'm an open chief. I mean, between email, phone, you want to meet me in person, uh, we should have that type of dialogue and those conversations. And again, I think sometimes the best conversations are the difficult ones. Um, I'm not the kind of person that wants to just, I don't, you know, cook the the message, if you will. It's I want to hear everything. Um, I don't surround myself with yes people. Um, I think I need to hear, you know, sometimes that uh, and have those difficult conversations, but it,
0: m- We had a little tech issue there, so you were at, uh, not the one to avoid the tough conversations, and you were on a roll. And I feel bad. I,
1: d- no, no worries. I was kind of like
0: five G my ass. This thing. I grew that extra ear for no reason.
1: <laughs> so if I get a little redundant, I'm sorry. I don't know exactly where I I trailed okay. off there, but um, I. Um, certainly as a police chief, it's my philosophy to have um, conversations. And I think sometimes the difficult ones are the most productive. So I encourage anybody, if you're interested in that conversation, um, I always am open to coffee, I have email, phone, come in in person. That's important. Um, but the one, the one thing real quick, Greg, I just was going to say, it. I just, um, the most important thing that I want people to know is that the staff of our department, it's the sworn officers, it's the support staff, they care they care about the community, they care about the residents, and we're all open to doing better. So let's have that conversation when we need to have it, and and don't be reluctant to reach out.
0: Is it all right if I put your email in the show notes? Absolutely. All right, terrific. This has been fantastic, Ryan. Thank you so so much. I'm going to stop recording right now, but this was was great, and I appreciate you uh, agreeing to be on. This was fun.
1: Appreciate you having me. Thank you.